Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, April 28th, 2019, and this is show number 729. Well, this week's Chit Chat Across the Pond was starring Kaylee Dio, the host of the Zetai Geek Dio podcast. She's also an English teacher in Japan, but she didn't just whip out a dusty old grammar book and drone on about when to use a gerund. In fact, she doesn't know what a gerund is. Anyway, she has mad programming and maker skills, and she puts them to use in engaging the children. She has reproduced 1980s TV game shows, all written by her in JavaScript, and then she hacks old iPhone 4s, maybe iPhone 4Ss, I forget which, to be used as game controllers. We had a terrific conversation that eh, from time to time went a bit off the rails, but that was mostly me causing it, but she helped. Anyway, her enthusiasm for the games she's created and a respect for the children she teaches is infectious. You can find Kaylee's tech podcast in your podcatcher of choice as Zetai Geek Dio, or you can go to platypuspodcast.com and you can find this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond Light in your podcatcher of choice as well, or you can find it over on Podfeet uh, under Chit Chat Across the Pond number 591. And of course, there's a link in the show notes. And with any luck, there's also a link in your podcatcher. This last Friday, I had the great pleasure of co-hosting the Daily Tech News Show with Sarah Lane and Roger Chang. The main discussion was centered around the question I posed to you in our Facebook group and our Slack about how do we learn technical things? You know, do we use books, manuals, help files, poke and find out what happens? Some of you may have gotten a shout out for your answers in this episode of Daily Tech News Show. So take a look for Daily Tech News Show number 3519, or you can do it by the, uh, let's see, by the title, which is Facebook Too Big for Its Breaches. And of course, there's a link in the show notes with the embedded video over on podfeet.com. When the original iPads Pro came out, I bought the original Apple Pencil. I didn't have any great excuse to get one. I didn't have a problem to be solved. I'm not an artist, and I don't even doodle for enjoyment. I bought one anyway because it seemed cool, and I thought maybe I'd find a use for it. When I discovered MyScript Stylus, the third-party keyboard that did on-the-fly character recognition of handwritten text, I finally had a great use for the Apple Pencil. Sadly, the folks at MyScript recently dropped the product entirely. I was really sad. I used Pencil for a few things here and there, but it wasn't my daily driver for anything. So when the new iPads Pro came out in 2018 or was that 2019, whatever, the most recent ones, I bought the 12.9-inch version, and again, I bought the Apple Pencil. I still had no excuse to buy one, but it was even cooler than the first generation, so I had to get it. As you probably know, the original Apple Pencil charged via the lightning connector on original iPads Pro. It looked dorky sticking out of the side of the device to charge, but, you know, that got to the job done. The new and improved Apple Pencil 2, as some people call the number 2 pencil, sticks to the long side of the new iPads Pro with a magnet, and it charges when it's stuck to it. That's a much more elegant solution. Both generations of pencil connect to the respective iPads Pro via Bluetooth, and the pairing process isn't too arduous. Starting a charge on either model makes pencil discoverable, and then it's an easy connect. The original Stick It in the Side pencil was $99, but the number 2 pencil is $129, a steep price just to be one of the cool kids to have one. When I got the new 12.9-inch iPad Pro, I gave my previous generation iPad Pro to my son Kyle, and of course, I couldn't use the original pencil on my new one, so I gave him my old pencil. Now I only had one pencil I didn't really need, but it was fun to play with from time to time. 
But then you remember I managed to justify the purchase of the new iPad mini, which took us back in time to the lightning connector. That meant that the pencil I gave away to Kyle was the one I needed if I wanted to use it with the pencil. Luckily, he hadn't found a use for it either, so he was fine with giving it back. So now I have two iPads and two pencils, and I can't use both pencils on both devices. Both have to be charged. Both have to be paired via Bluetooth. What if there was a better option? Enter the Logitech Crayon. Crayon was originally introduced for the education community, but it's now available for anyone to buy. If you haven't seen the Logitech Crayon, you might be envisioning this big fat cylinder with a fat, blunt, rubbery tip for a stylus. It's nothing at all like that. The Logitech Crayon looks more like a carpenter's pencil. My dad used these all the time for sketching his woodworking ideas. The carpenter's pencil has a rounded rectangle cross-section rather than a circle. According to Wikipedia, carpenter's pencils are shaped this way so they don't roll away and because they're easier to grip than a standard pencil and that the non-round core allows thick or thin lines to be drawn by rotating the pencil. The Logitech crayon is that same curious rounded rectangle shape. Where a carpenter's pencil has a big piece of lead, though, the crayon has a very, very fine tip. I have to say that the crayon is really, really comfortable in the hand, so I can vouch for the easier to grip than a standard pencil argument. Another thing you're probably thinking is that this is a lame stylus like the ones we used to use with rubber tips. You know, you might think there's like an extensive lag and it's difficult to point precisely. That is not the case either. Now, according to the Logitech website, quote, Logitech Crayon is built using Apple Pencil technology, so you know you're getting the best digital experience available today, giving you access to hundreds of Apple Pencil-supported apps instantly. Again, I have to vouch for the crayon here. The experience of drawing and handwriting with crayon is identical to the Apple Pencil experience. I sense zero lag, and the tip feels smooth and responsive on the screen with very precise pointing. Now, you might wonder why to buy crayon if it's the same as pencil, other than the fact that it doesn't roll off the desk, of course. The first reason, and it's compelling, is price. While the number one and Apple, uh, the number one and two Apple pencils cost $99 and $129 respectively, the Logitech crayon comes in at a modest $70. That's close to half the price of the newest pencil. The second reason crayon is better than the Apple pencil is that they can work on multiple iPads without pairing and unpairing. And the devices they work on can be iPads Pro with USB-C or iPads with Lightning. The Logitech crayon uses Lightning to charge, but not by sticking into the side of the iPad. Instead, it's got a female lightning connector under a little orange rubber cap. So any lightning cable that you've got laying around will charge the crayon. You do have to have something to charge it with, plug that into, of course, and you can't actually use the crayon while it's plugged into this little, uh, into your cable. Now, I mentioned that Apple Pencil requires pairing over Bluetooth, but oddly, the crayon doesn't require any pairing at all. You simply hold down the orange power button on the crayon for about a second till a green light comes on, and then you can start drawing on any iPad made in 2018 or later. No need for a pro-level device. So not only does the crayon cost half of what the Apple Pencil costs, you can buy a much less expensive iPad and still get pencil-like drawing. Here's one curiosity. If you already have an Apple Pencil paired to your iPad, you have to go to Bluetooth and forget this device in order for the Logitech crayon to work. I wish I understood more about the underlying technology of the Logitech crayon so I could explain how it actually does work on our iPads without Bluetooth 
And then if it isn't using Bluetooth, why does the pencil have to be unpaired first? Logitech Crayon puts itself to sleep to save battery, so you do have to turn it back on if you haven't used it for 30 minutes. They claim seven and a half hours of writing time, but I didn't get a chance to clock that. I have been playing with it a lot, and I've had to charge it a couple of times in the last week. It takes 30 minutes for a full charge of seven and a half hours, but if you're in a pinch and really need to keep working, a two-minute charge boost will give you 30 minutes of writing time. I tested that quick charge, and it definitely works as advertised. Where Apple Pencil is simplicity itself, a smooth white cylinder with no indicators, the Logitech Crayon has an LED that indicates the power level, whether it's charging, and it even turns yellow if it needs a firmware update. You know, what kind of world do we live in where your crayon needs charging and gets firmware updates? Well, the Logitech Crayon is missing two features of the Apple Pencil. The first is pressure sensitivity. If you're an artist used to the Cintiq tablets or Apple Pencil, you've gotten used to being able to press harder and lighter on your stylus to increase the width or darkness of your brush or pen in your artist program. Logitech Crayon is not for you. If you're a more casual user, you'll be glad to know that you can change the line thickness in many apps by changing the tilt of the crayon. Sort of like that carpenter's pencil, remember that? I tested this out in Apple Notes with the uh, marker, and it worked quite well. The second thing Crayon can't do is respond to gestures. In many drawing apps with the second-generation Apple Pencil, you can double-tap the flat side and switch from a pencil to an eraser. Other gestures are possible, but that's the one most developers have enabled. I wouldn't lose any sleep over missing this gesture if you get a crayon instead. I find that the double-tap gesture is kind of tricky and to reliably execute. I end up rolling the pencil in my fingers when I try or double-tapping when I don't mean to. You have to keep your eye on the pen and eraser icons in your app anyway to make these gestures to make sure they went through. So for me, it's just as easy to reach up and tap the eraser tool and back again to the pen instead. Now, I'm a big fan of the app Notability, which has palm rejection. As Logitech promises, the app, when used with the Logitech crayon, does allow me to comfortably rest my palm on the screen while I'm writing and drawing. The first-gen Apple Pencil came with a spare tip for the device, but the number two pencil does not. Logitech sells replacement tips for crayon and replacement rubber caps to cover the lightning connector, and you can even buy tip covers. When I saw the price of the replacement tips on the Logitech website, I thought they were overcharging because it cost $40, but then I saw it's for a pack of 10. All of the replacement packs are packs of 10 because they clearly package these for schools where those rotten little kids keep losing things. The bottom line is that I think the Logitech Crayon is an amazing device. I can't believe it costs nearly half of what pencil costs. I can't believe it works as well as Apple Pencil in precision and lack of latency. I'm delighted that it works across all different iPad models from 2018 and later. Now I only have to carry one stylus with me that I don't need, and I know it will work with whichever iPad I have with me. I have to say, one crayon is better than two pencils. You may have noticed that there are no ads in the NoSilicast. I don't advertise for men's razors or men's underwear or men's socks like a lot of podcasters. Heck, I don't even advertise for women's things either. Instead, this show is entirely supported by you. There are a few ways to do that, and one of the ways is to become a patron of the PodFeed podcast. The per-show or per-month pledges that you folks make really helps me in creating the shows by funding the gear and software I review for you. This week, I'd like to give a shout-out to John Atwood, who is already a patron, but he chose to 
double his contribution to the show. I love this because it shows that he does find value in this in this podcast that I do and all of the podcasts here, and he felt that he wanted to contribute even more. If you'd like to show in a monetary way that you get value from the NoSillaCast and the other shows that we produce here, please consider going to podfeet.com slash Patreon and sign up. This week on the Daily Tech News Show, not the episode I was on, Tom Merritt and Patrick Beja were talking about disk storage, and they got kind of tangled up in the terminology of bits versus bytes. After the show, I sent Tom an email correcting a little part of what he said. He let me know that he'd gotten a lot of email about it, and he said, I know, Allison, why don't you write up an explanation of where I went wrong? I picked up the challenge and I wrote the following article for him to point out or point all of the people who are correcting him, point them to this article. After I uh, do this, uh, this article for you, I'm going to play the DTNS reaction to the article because I think you'll enjoy it. I entitled this article, Eight Bits to a Byte, because people used to say that to me all the time. And I would always wonder, what the heck do they mean? The context would always be around sizes of hard drives or speed of internet. They would be very sincere in saying this to me, expecting that they were imparting great wisdom on me, but they might as well have said 12 hectares to a fortnight per kilowatt hour. It meant nothing to me. But after about 12 years of people saying it to me, I have finally honed my skill of actually using the phrase 8 bits to a byte for good and not just to make someone feel dumb. Before we dig into making sense of this, let's throw out some phrases so you feel some context for this conversation to start. You might hear people say, I have a one terabyte drive in my computer, or my phone has 128 gigabytes of storage, or my internet is 10 megabits per second, or I have 16 gigabytes of RAM in my laptop, or I have gigabit ethernet. All of these sound like they're related, and they actually are, but they're slightly different units. When we're done, you'll be saying eight bits to a byte with the rest of the, with the best of them as a way to explain these things to people. I should mention that after you get good at this, you will not be invited to parties anymore, but that's a risk you're going to have to take. First, let's break down the prefixes, mega, giga, and tera. Each of these is a prefix from the international system of units. There's a great chart in Wikipedia that shows the definition of all of the prefixes. I kind of love the chart because it shows you the year the prefix was adopted by the international system of units. Deca, hecto, and kilo which is a 1,000, were all adopted in 1795. But it wasn't until 1873 that mega came into vogue, which stands for million, or a 1,000 squared. If we keep going up the chart, we see giga at a 1,000 cubed and tera at a 1,000 to the fourth, which stands for billion and trillion, adopted in 1960. Things go a little crazy after that with yada at the very top of the chart at 1,000 to the eighth power. That was approved in 1991. Anyway, this whole raising a thousand to a power is referred to as base 10. I might have gotten a little carried away here and off topic, but it's cool to know that each step up from kilobyte to megabyte to gigabyte to terabyte is times 1000. That's the prefix taken care of in all our examples about internet speeds and disk drives and, ma- and RAM. But what about this bit versus byte nonsense that I started out with at the beginning? First, let's talk about bits. But before we do, let's talk briefly about capitalization in the abbreviations. Up until now, in the article, I've been writing out bits and bytes in words like megabits and terabytes. But normally these would be abbreviated. When you're abbreviating, 
bits always has to have a lowercase b and bytes is an uppercase b. So capital M lowercase b means megabits, where capital T capital B means terabytes. Okay, everybody with me? Capital B is bytes, lowercase b is bits. So what the heck is a bit? Well, a bit is a basic unit in information theory that can be a one or a zero. That's it. That's the entire job of a bit, be a one or be a zero. Now, we could go down some big rabbit holes about binary math, but let's not do it just this once. If a bit is a unit that is either a one or a zero, then what is a byte? You're going to love this. A byte is a unit of digital information that commonly consists of, wait for it, eight bits. Now, that eight is not an arbitrary number, luckily. In early computing, a byte was the smallest number of bits used to encode a single character of text. You can't create a character with one bit. You need eight bits. Say it with me. Eight bits to a byte. Ready? All right. So now why do you even care about this? I am 700 words into this blog post and I haven't even defined a problem to be solved yet. Here's an example. Disk drives, uh, disk drive sizes and RAM are usually explained in bytes, not bits. But internet speeds are usually described in number of bits per second, not bytes. Let's say I need to upload a 40 megabyte file and I have internet speeds of 10 megabits per second. How long will it take to upload my file? Well, I can't take 40 divided by 10 because those two numbers are different units. It would be like dividing feet by meters per second and thinking that the answer made any sense at all. Let's start by converting the 40 megabyte file into megabits. We know there's eight bits to a byte, right? Everybody say it, eight bits to a byte. So we can multiply 40 megabytes times eight bits per byte and you get 320 megabits. So our file is 320 megabits in size. We want to transfer it at 10 megabits per second. So now we can divide 320 by 10 on our internet connection. We know that theoretically it will take 32 seconds to upload the file. Except, of course, the bits manage to travel to Pluto and back to get to the server, so it always takes longer than that. See? 8 bits to the byte is your friend. One of the reasons this gets confusing is that people have started to say, I have gigabit Ethernet. Well, that doesn't actually make sense, does it? Gigabit doesn't have a time component in it. It's like saying my gas mileage is 32 gallons. Gallons per what? That has no meaning. For some reason, in talking about throughput, common usage is to drop the per second. In my opinion, if you don't have time to say per second, maybe you should loosen up your schedule. I hope that learning that 8 bits to a byte will help you to be smug and all-knowing as you go forward in life. It sure makes me happy to finally understand it. But hey, just for fun, let's make all of this a little bit harder, shall we? Remember way back when we had fun with SI units, I talked about how each of the jumps was a multiple of 1,000? Well, a kilobyte is 1,000 bytes, a megabyte is 1,000 squared, a gigabyte is 1,000 cubed. Well, what if instead of doing all this math in thousands, we started using base 2 instead of base 10 to describe these values? By that I mean, what if it was 2 raised to the power instead of 10 raised to a power? Now, we simply must take a side trip over to our good friends at NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And this time, we're not just going to NIST, we're going to physics.nist.gov, which takes NIST nerdiness to a whole new level. The title of the page I'm linking to, and this is the best title ever, it's The NIST Reference on Constants, Units, and Uncertainty. 
Isn't that awesome? Well, anyway, our friends at NIST explained that in 1998, the Society of Nerds, whose job it is to make you angry, also known as the International Electrotechnical Commission, established the word kibibyte. Because in reality, people in computer science were using kilobyte to mean 1,024 bytes instead of 1,000 bytes. The NIST nerds explain, by the way, that the B-I in kibibyte is to be pronounced like a long E as it sounds in English. So it really is kibibyte, K-I-B-I-B-Y-T-E. Now, the problem arose in the two different fields of computer science, those building hardware and memory versus those building networking and storage equipment. The memory nerds were using base 2, that is like 2 to the 10th, which is 1,024, while the networking nerds were using base 10, otherwise known as 10 cubed or 1,000. And both groups were using the same term, kilobyte. Something clearly had to be done. Enter kibibyte, 4,024 bytes, leaving kilobyte to maintain its status as 1,000 bytes. They also needed to come up with a way to write those funny new words, and they chose to snuggle the I in kibibyte into the acronym. So we have capital K, lowercase i, capital B, K-I-B, for kibibyte, and M-I-B for M, I'm sorry, M-I-B for mebibyte, that also stands for men in black, but that's not important right now, and G-I-B, again with a capital B, for gigibyte, gibibyte. <laughs> Uh, by the way, note that Mebibyte is spelled M-E, not M-I, but you still write M-I-B for Mebibyte, but you're going to remember that because I told you it's the same as Men in Black. Uh, it's getting really hard, but it's going to be hard to spell Mebibyte because it's M-E-B, not M-I-B. Now, do you really care about this whole Kibibyte nonsense? Well, maybe. If you're on Windows and you ask for the properties on a file, the size will say something like 1.95 megabytes but then in parentheses, it says 2047488 bytes. Now, you know why it shows you both sizes. The 1.95 megabytes is 2047488 divided by 1024 squared. Now, isn't that exciting? <laughs> I hope that you found this a little bit interesting. And at least from now on, you can with confidence say, well, actually, there are eight bits to a byte, you know. Okay. So on the following day after I wrote this article on uh, DTNS, Tom promoted the article for me, and I thought you'd like to hear his reaction and Sarah Lane's. You will also hear Justin Robert Young's reaction. Before you hear this, though, I have to explain why he makes the comment he does at the end. Quite a while ago, I admonished Jason, uh, Justin because he made the error of saying, so easy your grandmother could do it. You know how I feel about that. Anyway, enough preamble. Let's listen to their response to the article. Uh, also want to point out that uh, we had the gigabyte, gigabyte, uh, gigabit uh, conversation on the show on Tuesday with Patrick Beja. I was texting with Allison Sheridan about it yesterday, and I managed to convince her that she was the right person for the job to kind of <laughs> deep dive and explain all this. And she said... She would undertake this for all of our benefit, and she did a lot of work. She spent most of yesterday evening digging into this. She had to go to the NIST site, uh, but it's all available for you now in a very enjoyable and, may I say, sometimes hilarious write-up of 
8 bits to a byte at podfeet.com on her blog. Uh, so if you're interested still in like, wait, what, how is a gigabyte and a gigabit and a gibbybyte different? Uh, and how to pronounce them correctly? It's all there at podfeet.com. We'll have the link in the show notes as well. I'm really glad that she made something so easy that fathers and grandfathers can understand it. <laughs> she will appreciate that. Allison Sheridan, you are an American hero. Well, you can see why I like the reaction so much. Well, I'm going to do something I don't think I've ever done before, and that's review a piece of hardware that I don't own. On Friday night, my buddy Ron brought over something I got to play with, and I was really intrigued. He bought the GoSpace Supercharger from GetGoSpace.com. The GoSpace Supercharger is a wall charger, but it also functions as a battery pack. I think he bought it because he has a Tesla and they call their chargers superchargers. But anyway, I got to play with the GoSpace Supercharger for a short while, so let's go through its many virtues. The GoSpace Supercharger looks almost identical to the charger block Apple sells with all of their Mac notebooks. It's a white square with the removable flip-out charger that's compatible with your Apple extension cable. In size, it's about halfway between the 87-watt 15-inch MacBook Pro charger and the 60-watt 13-inch MacBook Pro charger. Being nerds, Steve, Ron, and I weighed all three of them. The Big Girl charger from Apple came in at 273 grams, the GoSpace Supercharger at 207 grams, and the Little Girl MacBook Pro charger came in at 179 grams. On one side of the GoSpace Supercharger, you'll find all of the charging ports. There are three high-power USB ports, all rated at 5 volts, 2.4 amps. Two of these ports are USB-A, and one is USB-C. The device also supports a, sports a gorgeous digital display telling you the charge capacity of the generous 10,000 milliamp-hour battery. The GoSpace Supercharger has a power button on the side, which is necessary for its final trick. This device is also a Qi charger. One side has a symbol to tell you which side is the Qi charging side. On all batteries, you don't want the wireless charging portion to be on all the time, hence the need for a power button on the GoSpace Supercharger. Lest you think you can't use the GoSpace Supercharger because you're not in the United States, I want to make sure to explain that it has interchangeable plugs that include Europe, the UK, and Australian configurations, along with the US plug. I asked Ron to do a couple of tests for me. He verified that without plugging the GoSpace supercharger into the wall, so using it on battery alone, he could charge a 10.5-inch iPad Pro and an iPhone 8, both via Lightning, to the two USB-A ports at the same time. Just for fun, he then added his iPhone 10 on top to wirelessly charge it via the Qi charger, and all three devices continued to charge. Now, Ron doesn't have any USB-C devices yet, but acting as a battery, the GoSpace Supercharger can deliver 50 watt-hours of charge. Since this battery supports USB-C charging, you won't have the loss I talked about in the AC to DC conversion that I mentioned in using uh, other batteries. The 13-inch MacBook Pro has a 55 to 58 uh, watt-hour battery in it, depending on whether you have the touch bar model or not, So that means that you could theoretically nearly charge a 13-inch MacBook Pro with the GoSpace Supercharger. The thing that intrigues me the most about the GoSpace Supercharger is that it can replace the traditional charger you carry with you already for your phone or tablet. You could probably charge a USB-C laptop as well, 
but it's only a 15-watt charger, so it will be slower than the charger that came with your laptop. For example, even the 12-inch MacBook Pro and the 13-inch MacBook, I'm sorry, the 12-inch MacBook and the 13-inch MacBook Air, they use a 30-watt power adapter. If you've got a Pro, the 13-inch is 61 watts and the 15-inch is 87 watts. You may be able to use this 15-watt charger to charge your laptop if you have all night, but it's definitely not going to be high speed for the bigger devices. As a charger, it can replace at least some of what you carry already. You can even replace one of the batteries you inevitably carry with you. And all of this in a device that only weighs around 200 grams. That's less than half a pound. The only downside to the Ghostbase charger I can find is that they don't sell it on Amazon, so I can't give you an Amazon affiliate link. I have to send you directly to the Ghostbase website at getghostbase.com. And one more thing. It only costs $59 US. Well, two more things. I do have one hesitation about this product, and it's that we don't know anything about this company. They have a Twitter account. It's got 22 tweets since 2007. Their products don't sell anywhere but their own website. They might be 100% legit, and the charger itself may be of very high quality, meeting the specs for charging devices to be safe. They're simply an unknown at this point. If you want an alternative to the Ghostbase Supercharger, Apple sells a similar product made by Anchor. They're a well-known and well-respected brand. It's called the Anchor 10,000 milliamp hour power core fusion power delivery and battery and charger. It's a long name. And this charger is only available at Apple. You can buy the 5,000 milliamp hour version of it on Amazon, but not the 10,000 milliamp hour model. It looks just like an Apple wall charger, but it doesn't have the removable US plug and it doesn't come with international plugs. Now, I haven't gotten to play with the Anchor device, so I'm just telling you about it to consider an alternative. The Anchor is $100 versus the $59 GoSpace. The Anchor is a 42-watt wall charger, which is higher than GoSpace, but it also weighs 25% more than the GoSpace. It has official power delivery, where the GoSpace specs never mention power delivery. It only has one USB-A port, but it does have Anchor's IQ charging. It doesn't have Qi charging, while the Ghostbase Supercharger does. I just wanted to throw this out here, not because I expect there to be anything wrong with the Ghostbase Charger, but to give you an alternative that might make some of you sleep better at night. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. You can do that by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. Want to join Patreon? Podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to join our Facebook group? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. Want to join our Slack? Podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to Podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocella Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.